start out with yarn, which is pretty big round. It's got a decent sized little hook that I know how to crochet. I, it's cool. I do stuff. I do scarves. It's no big deal. Um, <laughs> this, on the other hand, is crocheted with a really tiny hook and thread. Um, so instead of being able to churn out, say, like a, like a scarf over the course of an afternoon or an evening or a couple of days, this takes about a year, year and a half. Um, my mom has made three of these. Uh, I have one. Uh, my, when Bree and I got married, she made one for us over the course of a year. So we have one. Um, my sister and her husband have one. And my mom made one, of course, for herself. Um, if, you, if you know me, I have four kids. Um, so ours is in a plastic bag in a closet, <laughs> probably until I die. But uh, <coughs> I have it, and it'll look nice on a table someday, maybe. Um, if you could go to the next slide. So the knots that this thing takes, there's a close-up, there we go. Uh, like each one of those designs is a series of loops and a series of knots. Um, and it can take all day sometimes to do just one of the little pineapple-shaped thingies. Um, you'll notice the design is super intricate. On a, uh, on a scarf, if you, if you drop a stitch, if you mess up, it's actually possible just to keep going. My kids have a couple that look a little odd, but um, yeah, you just keep going. This, on the other hand, uh, you can't. Because <laughs> if you drop a stitch, if you miss something, it throws the whole pattern off. Um, I watched my mom make at least two of these. I was, I was in the house while she was making them. And uh, like I said, it, it took her about a year, year and a half. Um, the most devastating part of watching these uh, was when she would get all the way around, which would sometimes take all day or a couple of days to get all the way around, and realize once she got back to a certain part that she'd drop a stitch. And so she'd sat there, smile on her face, just pulling the yarn, <laughs> just day, day and a half worth of work, just going right back into a ball. Um, and for me, you know, I, I say it takes a day, day and a half to do a scarf. It takes me about a week to do a scarf. So I'm watching this thinking I just would, I'd throw it away, basically, at that point, because <laughs> I, I would be done. Um, but I, I realized while I was writing this sermon, this was a great analogy, because for her, she wasn't destroying anything. She was making it better. But for her, it was a day. It was a day and a half worth of work for her. But it didn't destroy anything, because ultimately, she ended up with these beautiful masterpieces of, of handicraft. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about the Reformation and what that means. So this is Reformation Sunday, um, and it's celebrated to varying degrees across the world. Um, some churches have been doing an entire series over the last month uh, about the Reformation. Um, our church, we, we did a, we'll dedicate a Sunday, this is that Sunday, to that. Um, there are some places that celebrate, uh, you, can get, you can get a little Lego figure that's Martin Luther with his little 95 theses and a hammer. Um, so they, they celebrate it to varying degrees and do different things, but, uh, but this, is, this is how we're choosing to, to do today. The, the Reformation Sunday is a, 
It's a celebration of one specific event. Um, but the Reformation as a whole is a really complicated and complex concept. Uh, so the Reformation Day actually takes place on October 31st, a.k.a. the day I rob all of my children of Halloween candy. Um, but it's also All Saints Day in the church calendar. Um, it is the day that, historically, we celebrate Martin Luther walking up to the door of the University Church in Wittenberg and nailing a list of the 95 theses that he'd come up with. That's it. Just a piece of paper. But the backstory and what that caused were far greater than a simple essay. The backstory is that the church had been going through a really tough time. Um, they had been attempting to build St. Peter's Basilica, which is if you've ever seen pictures of that, massive, grand building. It took a lot of money and a lot of resources to build, and the church was running out of money. Um, I don't want to blame it on him, but Pope Leo X, who was in charge at the time, was kind of an extravagant fella. Um, he would have parties at the Vatican, and I'm not talking like, you know, grape juice and cake. Uh, crazy parties. Wild animals would be brought in, and they'd roam the, the grounds, and they, some even said, ran around inside the Vatican. Um, he would hire little people to hide inside cakes and jump out. Um, but he, the long and short of it is he spent a ton of money on stuff that had nothing to do with the church. So they were trying to build St. Peter's Basilica, and they needed money. Um, so they kind of picked up a side gig, as it were, and uh, they started hiring these people to sell what were called indulgences. Um, so if you know the, the cycle of, of repentance and sin, it's we have sin in our lives, and we can confess that sin, and then um, we feel um, the Holy Spirit come upon us, and and we ask for forgiveness, and we're forgiven of those sins. And um, it's a little more formal in the Catholic Church. You go see a priest, and he gives you a penance to serve, and and you're asked to serve prayer or say prayers or or, or serve that that penance out in a different way. Um, indulgences, on the other hand, were quite literally money for salvation. Um, they were scrolls of paper, sometimes sealed with a papal seal, that absolved the owner of sin. Um, and it wasn't a one-time thing. It was quite literally a get-out-of-jail-free card. Within the, uh, within the belief system of the Catholic Church, there's a, a way station of sorts before heaven called uh, purgatory. Um, you essentially serve out payment. It's a really complicated concept. You essentially serve out payment for some of your unabsolved sins on earth in purgatory. But if you had an indulgence a one-way ticket to heaven. At least that was the, that was the belief. Um, these indulgences allowed the owner to show no repentance, so they didn't have to go confess their sins, um, and it absolved any sin at all. Um, and the one thing, uh, in Germany in particular, there's a, a guy named Johann Tetzel that was the grand commissioner for indulgences. His indulgences that he were selling, was selling was, they were odd in that they allowed dead people to be absolved of sins. So if you had an Uncle John that 
was a decent fellow, that he had some issues in life, and he had passed on. You could go buy an indulgence for Uncle John, and if Uncle John was in purgatory, well, then Uncle John would go to heaven, um, which lines up with absolutely nothing in the Bible. They were quite literally just making that up. Um, so Martin Luther, uh, who was a priest at the time, he was an Augustinian monk, and he, uh, he would hear confession from people, and uh, it happened that he noticed that people weren't coming to confession, which was a, a particular issue for him, um, because Martin really, really, really liked confessing. I felt compelled to. I think maybe like is too strong of a word. Um, so the, the, the men that were in, in charge of his order actually have writings that's, that talk about Martin Luther and his confessing. Um, and sometimes he would go and he would kneel before a priest and he would confess his sins and he would be given his penance and he would get up and walk literally 10 feet away and then realize he wasn't quite done and he would come back and for sometimes another half an hour to an hour would rattle off more sins or, or rattle off the same sins because he didn't really feel like he had suffered and served enough to repay those sins. So he really, really appreciated the institution of confession, and he noticed that a lot of the people in his town weren't coming anymore. And sometimes they did, and he would say, hey, you haven't been in a while, and they were producing these papers and saying, well, I, I don't have to. <laughs> Got this indulgence. And so that didn't sit right with him, because he was actually, his position within the, the University of Wittenberg, he was a moral theologian. So his job was to research and write about the morality of the church. So his love of confession and, and his position in the church didn't really allow him to, to sit with this idea of just not confessing sin. So he got to thinking about it, and he wrote on it. And what he essentially writes out is a 95-step proof, including biblical text and information from the, the church canon to explain why the cell of indulgences in particular, was not a good practice. So what he was doing was essentially pointing out the flawed logic in the church at the time. But what it caused was much more than a simple, hey, I got a problem with the church. It'd be, it'd be, it should be much more different if I came to, to, to David or to Dan and said, hey, uh, the TVs are tilted funny, or... You know, I think we should spend more money on bagels in the morning. It was a much bigger deal than that. What Luther did literally cost people their lives. Let me explain. He went a few years before he was brought before a judicial body and um, charged with crimes that would have meant death for most people. Um, for him, he went back to work and was taken in by a church and by a university and allowed to continue academic work until the day he died. Um, but these were very, very serious charges against a church that people held very dear. What it caused in the future were wars. In France, there were several years of wars where thousands of people died. Protestants, new Protestants against the Catholic Church, uh, it allowed for churches to split. The, the concept of being able to split from the church and start your own church was just not really a thing 
that had come up before. The church was the church. You didn't do that. But we see now, after the Protestant Reformation, there was a church, Church of England, all the Protestant denominations here, it allowed a massive split to happen within the church, capital C. A lot of historians end, in their mind, the, the bloodshed that occurred in the Reformation with the Thirty Years' War. Um, but we see today that, that those tensions go on. If you know anything about Ireland in the 80s and the 90s, you know that a lot of the political strife that caused to the, the separation and the delineation in that island had to do with Protestants and Catholics. As a matter of fact, even, even simple things like soccer, which I love if you've ever talked to me for more than 10 minutes, we'll end up talking about soccer at some point, I can guarantee it. But one of my favorite leagues is in Scotland, and there's two teams, which I loathe both of them. Um, not my favorite teams, but uh, the Rangers and the Celtics. Um, and given their position within Scotland, there's actually factions that have formed along religious lines. So if you're Protestant, you're a Rangers fan. If you're Catholic, you're a Celtics fan. It permeates our life to this day in ways that are strange and sometimes very odd. So that's Reformation Sunday in a nutshell. Let's talk about what the Reformation isn't. The Reformation is not a chance to bash Catholics. I come from a tradition that is very steeped in reform and in a way that is kind of mean sometimes. Um, sometimes when we talk about the Reformation, it seems as if it's a triumph over evil. Um, and it sounds like I might be blowing this out of proportion, but wait, there's more. Politics in the United States has been dogged by anti-Catholic sentiment for years. Um, in the 1920s, uh, the governor of New York ran for president of the United States, and he was Catholic. And he was actually the first Catholic nominee for president and the last until JFK. Um, and there were rumors circulating. Let's, let's all take a moment and wrap our heads around this. There were rumors circulating that if he were elected president, he was going to dig a tunnel from the White House to the Vatican. It's a long way, and it's a lot of water to get through. But it was crazy, and he lost the election. I'm not saying because necessarily because he was Catholic, he may have been a terrible politician. But we even see what happened in, in JFK's election. JFK was popularly considered a, a good president. He was really popular, and, and when I had to learn about him in school because you know, I'm just a baby. But um, he only won that election out of 16 million votes. He only won that election by 100,000 against Nixon. And a lot of that was chalked up to the anti-Catholic sentiment in the country at the time. Protestants really couldn't stand Catholics, even in America, even as recent as 50 years ago. But when we talk about the Reformation, it's not 
an attempt to further that cause. We're not here to talk about how Catholics messed up. I will tell you what it is, though. The best representation I could find in the Bible, scripturally speaking, about what the Reformation is actually about is in Proverbs. <clears throat> and I think you all have heard this verse before. If you haven't, then you've never attended Sunday school. Um, Proverbs 27, 17. As, our, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The interesting thing about this, looking through the, the commentaries and the, the studies that I was doing on it, was that <clears throat> who has a pocket knife? Anybody carry a pocket knife? Okay, so when you sharpen it, what do you sharpen it with? Whetstone, right? Um, that's been a thing for centuries. Um, you have this stone, if you're unfamiliar with the process, you have a metal blade, and you have a stone, and you put, ideally, you put oil, but if you're, you know, if you grew up with people like my dad, you spit on the stone, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and you run this blade at an angle over the stone, and it hones the edge on the blade. But the weird thing about this is that iron sharpens iron. Now, it's possible. You've seen, if you've ever seen, like, uh, like comical depictions of a chef, like in a movie, and they've got their knives, and they're psh, 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 doing that thing, you can sharpen knives with steel. Ideally, though, you use a whetstone. So the, the proverb is, is really interesting because they don't mention whetstones, which would have been in use at the time. The writer, though, names iron as the sharpener rather than the whetstone because he wishes to denote that one man is the same as the other. This isn't a, a process when we, when we sharpen each other through debate and we talk and we, and we bring up things. It's not an attempt to destroy the other person because eventually that happens to whetstones. If you've had a whetstone, you know that grooves start to wear in it and eventually you do have to replace those because you wear that down over time. It's not an attempt to destroy the other person. It's an attempt to sharpen myself and sharpen them. It gives us a chance to construct instead of deconstruct. The 95 Theses were actually less a public demonstration of his unhappiness with the Catholic Church and more an attempt to bring light to weaknesses. I was telling, I was telling some people before the service, when you start researching the, the Reformation and, and this day's events in particular, you see a bunch of different depictions. Um, historically speaking, like I said, he grabs a, a paper and he tacks it on the door of this church in Wittenberg. Um, but there's actually no solid evidence to suggest that he did that. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that. That's fine, and I don't think it actually matters to the story. Um, we do have evidence to suggest that he wrote it down and had it couriered um, to different professors at the school. Um, but the depictions you see online, the, the artistic representations, are everything from what looks like a small essay being tacked up to a massive poster-sized like, demonstration, like, this is how terrible the church is, or a, like, he'll tack it up and this giant scroll rolls like, down the stairs. It's, it wasn't a public demonstration of him trying to say, you guys are messing up. What it, what it was was 
effectively an academic paper of him saying, hey, I've been studying, and, and I've been translating the Bible, and the stuff we talk about, I don't see it in there. And I want to I talk to somebody about it. I don't feel like, I don't feel like this is right. We've seen a change in the modern church, though, and I think we owe a lot to what Martin Luther did. You look at the modern Catholic church, and we have Pope, Pope Francis now, um, who's a great guy. I think he says a lot of great stuff, and I think he's done a lot to bring the changes that the Second Vatican Council had talked about, and he's, he's done a lot to actually bring those into practice. The Second Vatican Council was a really big change for the church. It, um, in many people's eyes, it liberalized the way faith was acted out in the Catholic Church, but, but Pope Francis has done a lot to bring those changes into practice. The Catholic Church in general is uh, kind of changing the way they see the Reformation in general. In a, a recent article, uh, Pope, or, uh, sorry, Bishop Dennis Madden, who's the, the bishop over Baltimore, had this to say, Catholics should do penance for setting the stage for the division. It was not out of the blue that Luther's protest happened. The society, the church, the way things were done at the time called for reform. And there were very few courts of appeal where the reform could begin. Basically what he was saying is things were going to change, and we knew they were going to change. And since the church was essentially the highest authority at the time, there was nobody else he could really go to. He had to go to the church and say, I think these things need to change. But what the church did was rejected him instead of listening. On the other side, the head of the Lutheran church in, in America, Reverend Elizabeth Eaton, said this, we've had to say that breaking up the Western church was not a gift to the church. We celebrate the Reformation sometimes as if it's this great, grand celebration of when we broke free of, you know, whatever. Um, but it wasn't a good thing for the church. It wasn't a good thing for the Catholic church. It wasn't a good thing for the Protestant church. It may have needed to happen, but like a lot of things that need to happen, it wasn't fun and it wasn't good. We talked last week about the concepts of renewal and redemption and restoration. And we, we've actually been talking about that in this, this series all along about how God brings about opportunities to build. The truth is there's no two ways about this. You can't, you can't believe in part of this book and not believe in all of this book. It's, it's a collection of several writings, but the miracle, the beauty of this is that they're cohesive and that they make an argument all together, written in different time periods by different authors. They make the same argument. It's easy to look at part of the gospel. It's easy to say, I'm a follower of Christ, I believe, I believe in Jesus. I believe he came to earth fully God and fully man. I believe in Jesus. He came. He had a ministry for three years. He had disciples. He taught them how to bring God's kingdom here on earth. He died. 
three days later, bodily resurrected, ascended into heaven. I believe in Jesus Christ. But do you believe in everything he says? I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to believe in the nuts and bolts of a situation. But in Jesus' own words, John 17, 20 through 23, says this. And Jesus is praying for believers. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. This is the important part. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you catch that? Then the world will know. After unity, then the world will know. Because the thing is, if we're, if we're a bunch of separate churches and we're saying a bunch of different things and we don't look at it as, as maybe just a, a simple misinterpretation or a thing that needs to be worked on, if we, if we look at the Reformation as a chance to destroy one church in order to build another, then what the world sees is not Christ, but church politics. I'm going to make one of those definitive statements that gets pastors in trouble sometimes. <clears throat> if you love Jesus, then the restoration of our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ is a must. If you love Jesus, then we must, must reconcile those beliefs. It's been 500 years. There's been a lot of work done, and there is a lot of work left to be done. But as a church, we have to look at the Catholic Church as not an enemy, but as a brother and as a sister and as someone whom we need to come alongside and learn from, not just tell, but learn from. 